Carlos Sainz wins his first Grand Prix from his first pole position, but another questionable Ferrari strategy leaves Charles Leclerc cold. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 10, the British Grand Prix, powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. Carlos Sainz wasn't the fastest driver in qualifying or in the race, but he played his cards better than anyone else to leave Silverstone with his maiden pole and win. But it was a race he almost lost several times. First to Max Verstappen, who passed him early but dropped down the order with damage. Then to his teammate Charles Leclerc, who passed him in the middle of the race but was undone by a late safety car. And he could have lost it to Lewis Hamilton too, but for his own aggressive safety car restart to seize back his long-lost lead. But the victory was somewhat bittersweet for Ferrari, which accidentally strategized its way to victory with the wrong car, while Leclerc, still its lead championship driver, tumbled to fourth. To help understand what Ferrari did and why, I'm joined by Julian Billiot, F1 reporter for Auto Hebdo. Julian, it's good to see you. Good day, mate. Very good pronunciation. It's a nightmare <laughs> even for French people. <laughs> We've picked a great race, Julian. We've picked a terrific race. Yeah. Probably the best of the season. We knew. Yeah, we knew. We knew. We knew. We knew. Him. That's, you know. <laughs> we got the press release in advance, so it's good that they warned us at least. Exactly. Uh, probably the best of the year. Who knows? It's always hard to say, you know, we tend to have recent memory mm. bias. Every time we see a great race, oh, best of the year. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's only natural. But, uh, yeah, and the races come so, you know, thick and fast mm. that sometimes you get, get mixed up. So I can't even remember what happened in Imola or stuff like that. So, but it was definitely... A great race with everything we love about F1, including being a scary sport. You know, sometimes it's good to have a not good, but to have that kind of reminder that these guys are doing, are putting everything on the line. Yeah. Well, look, let's start with that crash because it was the big story, and then we can move on yeah, to the strategy. Of and yes, not a good story, but on the other hand, sometimes I like to think of these crashes as good stories because everyone walked away unhurt. Even Alex Albon went to the hospital briefly but was discharged also uninjured. And both him and Joe Guan Yu, who of course had the more spectacular crash, will be racing this weekend at the Austrian Grand Prix. The forces involved in this crash were enormous and it wasn't just, of course, people will talk about the halo, that was a big part of it, but it really tested almost every safety element of the sport, all the way to catch fencing. I can't yeah. remember the last time we talked about a catch fence. And I think that's kind of a, an understated, impressive part of Formula One, isn't it? That quiet safety story. Exactly. I mean, we, we too often we take safety in racing, you know, for, for granted. Like when you, when you cover a race on site, you, you never go with, you know, in the back of your mind, the idea that, you know, there could be a huge accident. You, you always go to cover a great sports event. So um, it's hard to say it's, it's a good reminder, but it's, it's, it's crazy to think how, how much progress has been made in the field of safety. Even, you know, even in re- recent uh, years, of course, the introduction of, of Halo 2018, uh, but also, you know, the helmet technology is always improving. Uh, I know this year in the 2022 uh, regulation changes, they include a lot of also safety improvements, which has bumped up the, the way of the cars. And sometimes we complain, oh, the cars are too heavy. They're not as nimble as, as they used to be. But when you see that kind of, you know, of, um, of uh, crazy events, you, you're quite happy that, you know, these improvements are, are in place indeed. Really great call on the weight, in fact. I hadn't thought about it like that, but it really does make it seem worth every kilo, doesn't it, when we walk away from a crash like this. There was one 
big particular effect on the race outcome, other than obviously three cars not starting, one of them being George Russell, even though his car probably could have started. That's on him, I guess, for getting out of the car. And that was that Max Verstappen changed tyres on the grid. We'll get to that a little bit later on, though, because I want to look at this race a little bit overall before we get into the details. And I want to talk about Carlos Sainz, of course. He won from his first pole position as well, first pole and first victory, despite not really being the fastest in qualifying or really even being the fastest in the race. But he took his chances, and that's what counted. Obviously, he'll be pumped after this weekend to have won his first race, all of that excitement and everything. But how do you think he'll reflect on that in the days afterwards, given that it didn't really feel like there was a big breakthrough in terms of his deficit to Leclerc or even Ferrari's potential deficit to Red Bull? It's interesting because I think he won a race, he lost something like three times, you know, with the first actual start when Max overtook him and and after with the, you know, the Ferrari shenanigans that we will <laughs> dive into. But Carlos is a very clever driver. I know they're all clever guys, but he's, you know, especially clever, very matured, well-mannered. So I don't want to rain on his parade this week because, you know, this is quite an achievement, your first career win after 150 races. But I'm sure when he look back that he, he, you know, he will know that maybe he was not as fast as as his teammate. But on the other hand, you know, when, when there was the opportunity to, to you know, to pound and, and grab the win after the safety, at the safety car restart, he sort of, you know, <laughs> cleverly ignored Ferrari's motors <laughs> to, to back up the entire field and just say, look, you know, I, I can't do that. It's impossible. And and he's actually very good at that, you know, managing through the radio, staying very calm. You, you never hear him complain or, you know, get hot under the collar like someone like Max Verstappen or even Lewis sometimes gets upset. He, he stays very calm. So I'm sure, I'm sure he's aware of Charles' just roll speed and maybe... He was, I mean, maybe he was clearly faster during this race, you know, even with a Ferrari that was, that was damaged. But that doesn't mean that he, his, his victory should not be, you know, belittled because of, you know, this is, this is racing and, you know, the, so I think he'll reflect proudly on that. But I'm sure he knows that, you know, just in terms of raw speed, he was not up there with, which does, and even perhaps for Max, of course, before the the the, the Red Bull picked up damage, or even Checo, and may, maybe Lewis. But in the end, you know, he was the one taking the check flag, and that, that's the only thing that matters. And Ferrari's race overall, and this is what we're about to dive into and unpack. Uh, they had three cars in the the top three in qualifying. They had a one-two up till about seventy-five percent race distance. They could have got full points had the race been stopped for some reason. A shame about that, I guess. But then up with one car winning, to be fair, and it was Carlos Sainz, the other off the podium. And the mindset of Ferrari was very defensive afterwards. Of course, they had to answer a lot of questions that we're going to be discussing in just a second, but. Is this a rare case of a slightly unhappy victory? Obviously, very happy for Carlos, naturally enough, but for the overall result? This is a very tricky balance for Mattia you know, Binotto to, to hit because obviously, as you mentioned, uh, in terms of the championship picture, Charles Leclerc is probably the, the best hope for Ferrari to, you know, to challenge Max all the way through. But on the other side, it, it's hard you know, to be... You can't really criticize the strategy when you know the other driver, the other Ferrari, just won his first race. I, I just mentioned raining on you know Carlos Parade. You, just for ter- in terms of team dynamics, it would be 
pretty bad look to just <laughs> to just commiserate <laughs> about the missed opportunity for Charles. And Charles is also like Carlos, a great gentleman, very cordial, even during the you know the ten slaps where they were where he was asking to 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 move fast because he was faster. It, it never got to the to the point where he was shouting at the radio because that's not Charles persona and after the race you say you know let's not talk about me this is this is all about Carlos so I guess in terms of team dynamics uh, this was uh, well managed and but as you say it, it clearly felt like an unhappy victory at least for for the Tifosi because I mean <laughs> for, for, from some reactions I know social media is not you know accurate or representative but you know it was it was the overall mood apart from of course the, the Carlos Sainz fans <laughs> and the Spanish press who who deserved because they had been waiting for nine years since Fernando Alonso's uh, last uh, last win so yeah I'd say unhappy victory is uh, it was a weird atmosphere after the race you know especially when, when you have a, a driver getting his first race when he should be turbulent and just you know just pure joy but it was yeah, quite a subdued affair, especially when, when Mattia Binotto had to answer so many questions next to his driver. So he can't really, <laughs> you know, he can't really apologize to Charles when, you know, the other guy, Carlos, is just sitting next to him and, and just won his first Grand Prix. So tricky to handle, but I guess, you know, as part of the job when you're a team principal, you have to, you're always managing crisis or and doing PR stuff like this. But yeah, but I, I know a lot of people, I'm sure we will, get more in details into that. We'll crucify Ferraris for making a mistake. You know, it's not the first time because, you know, they have been a bit shaky, I think, since, ever since Ross Braun or Jean Todd and Jean Todd, sorry, left the team. I felt like they have been a bit, I don't know, not as sharp as Mercedes or Red Bull, for instance, clearly. But I see, and I'll try to play devil's advocate, I sort of understand what they try to achieve. But obviously, the, the end result is not great for championship picture but it's not as all doom and gloom as it can look from you know from the onset i just want to go back a second there you you touched on the team dynamic element which i think was a massive part of this weekend because it was such a big weekend for carlos and the opportunities were there for him to seize even though he didn't have the pace and ultimately he did so in that sense ferrari was correct in leaving the door open for him to to have a chance to win but on the other hand, look, it is still relatively early in the season. We've got a very long season in Formula 1. We're we're not even halfway. In fact, we'll be only halfway at the end of this weekend. But it's been a while before this race, admittedly, because Carlos Sainz is now only 11 points behind Charles Leclerc. But before this, he was almost 25, almost a full race win and had been bigger before that. It, it seemed pretty clear, right, that if Ferrari was going to take on the championship, it needed to back Charles Leclerc because they were both behind quite a bit. Max Verstappen stretched that lead out and Carlos Sainz was even further back, even more unlikely. Are you surprised that Ferrari has resisted before now picking that number one and number two driver? Or is it because they knew that at some point Carlos was going to have to win that first race and they needed him on side for later in the year? What's your read on that idea that Ferrari's resisted making that decision? Well, but as you mentioned, 25 points is, is nothing when you have 22 races and mm-hmm. still, you know, 12 to go after after this one. Uh, I think Max was how many points behind Charles after three or four races? Like almost 50, something crazy like this, because he had a couple of retirements when, when Charles uh, won the, you know, two races out of, out of the first three. So 25 points is nothing, especially when you're, you know, if you have a retirement and the other scores big. So I totally understand Ferrari's logic also because, 
And that was the same. That has always been the case, I think, if you look at Michael Schumacher and Rubens Barrichello, Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas, now Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez, is that the number one driver sort of emerges naturally because he's just faster. So they don't need to have any team orders because, well, Charles, you know, it's, it's no insult. I don't want to insult Carlos Sainz because he's a very solid, very complete driver. But I think it's fair to say that Charles Leclerc is a faster driver, better driver, better might be, yeah, I'd say a better driver as well, you know, compared to, to, to Carlos. So the, I'm sure teams always kind of hope that the picture gets clearer and clearer as the, the season falls and, and, and the, the number one driver just naturally emerges because he's just, you know, just faster. So that's why they resisted the idea. And even during the race, and also because you don't want to crush the confidence of your of the other driver, you know. Because if 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 as soon as Charles was behind Carlos and they say Carlos, oh, just uh, move aside, move aside for Charles, it might seem ruthless. I'm pretty sure Red Bull would do it, <laughs> <laughs> like they did. I think with Checo in Spain, uh, but you know, Checo already had like two wins in his in his career. Uh, Carlos, he didn't have that 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 win, so. If they just, you know, killed any hope of him, if they did not even allow him to fight for that opportunity, it would have been, I think, bad for the team dynamics uh, down the road. So I thought they were quite clever in giving, you know, Carlos some lap targets to hit with the lap time and and only after, you know, several laps asking him to, to move aside for Charles. So I think they actually, I mean, during that phase of the race, I thought they played, they tried to play it on both sides, you know, just uh, please, no, not please, but say support Charles because he remains for me the the, the, the favorite to, to fight all, all the way for, for the title while not upsetting Carlos by, you know, asking him to move aside right away. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because at one point in the race, everything seemed pretty calm. Now, Sainz got passed by Max Verstappen. It looked like Verstappen was probably going to head to a comfortable victory. Obviously, we only had a very small window to judge that on, but that's certainly what it looked like. That Red Bull car was was pretty quick all weekend. Then had half of an Alpha Tauri stuck underneath his floor, completely destroyed it by the sounds of it. He was out of contention, finished well deep into the point. Suddenly, this became a battle for the win for the Ferrari cars. Leclerc, as you said, was the faster car behind. Carlos Sainz was kind of being encouraged to move along a little bit quicker. But then Lewis Hamilton came into the picture, didn't he? And and Hamilton was closing relatively quickly, had great tyre usage, was always going to be a threat to win this weekend. It was his home race, track works for Mercedes, all of those kind of things. We'll talk about Mercedes in a little bit more detail later on. But considering... And I thought it was really interesting listening to Charles Leclerc's radio as well, because he could he could see Hamilton closing. He knew the lap times weren't enough. It was interesting that that they didn't respond more quickly to that. I, I agree. I think it was a good call in the sense of keeping Carlos Sainz uh, confident and onside. But I was a little bit surprised, I don't know if you were as well, that watching Hamilton get closer and closer, they kind of didn't react so much. I think surprised... Yeah. Sometimes I feel like Ferrari is still haunted by what happened in Austria 2002. You know, you know, team orders with Schumacher and Barrichello. They had, you know, that kind of ghost hovering over them. I remember, I think Mercedes when they asked Bottas to move aside in Russia 2018. Mm. You know, it's just just took no prisoners, and they and they they, they made the call right away. Uh, Ferrari, they're always sort of reluctant, even when Kimi and Seb were driving for for the teams. 
Um, I remember, I think it was Germany 2018, when they said to Kimi, in, in almost like coded sentences, to, to move aside for Seba without actually saying move aside for Seba. And Kimi was like, well, what do you want me to do? Just say it. <laughs> and I don't know. Ferrari always seems uncomfortable with that kind of stuff. Um, given, and I'm sure it's a, it's a product of their of their history. But uh, was I surprised? Yes and no. Yeah, I mean, as I say, if it were Red Bull or Mercedes, uh, when Mercedes had Lewis and, and Valtteri, it, the call would have come much earlier, I reckon. But given that uh, Carlos, you know, hadn't had his his first race win, I was not surprised really. Plus, you said the gap to Lewis was closing, but it was they were not losing like. Mm-hmm. two seconds per lap I, th- I guess it was manageable because I think the Ferrari remains a faster car compared to the Mercedes so I'm not inside you know the mind of Inaki Reda the head of strategy at Ferrari but I'm sure they thought okay if we fall back behind Lewis they, there is always a way to, f- to fight by especially on a track like Silverton where you can overtake so it's it's a gamble it's a risk that they were willing to take just to make sure that they didn't kill Carlos' confidence, and so I was, I was not, I was surprised because F1 is so ruthless that I'm surprised that when they try to, to maybe appease, you know, the two drivers and not make what us fans, you know, from watching from afar, thing would have been the most sensible decision. It is an interesting way to look at it, isn't it? I'm inclined to agree, and I think it is up to that point of the race anyway. It did seem like they were managing it kind of all right. I mean, as you said, Hamilton wasn't closing yeah. in extremely yeah. quickly. He was a threat was. and they acknowledged yeah. it, but they were still kind of managing it. And Hamilton did have to try a different strategy he was going to get past. He did run long mm. uh, and that gave him fresher ties towards the end, which we'll touch on in just a second. This is my rough calculation uh, that Leclerc was stuck behind signs for about 15 laps, more or less. When he was eventually let past after the pit stops, about five laps after he made his pit stop, he was nearly half a second faster. So mm. let's say between six and seven. This is very ambitious. You can't really be like this with Formula 1 in retrospect. But, you know, maybe six or seven seconds there at most, mm. I'm willing to say. Then the safety car came out, lap 39, right? And Alpine failed. Mm. That does seem to happen uh, from time to time in Formula too, 1 too, this season. Too often. Too and that's often. okay. <laughs> too it's often. a fr- French reliability there. There you go. <laughs> At least it wasn't on Fernando Alonso's that car. Like, Imagine that. Imagine, yeah. Even more unhappy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that caused a complete change in this race because it triggered a safety car. Mm. At, in some senses, really the wrong time for Ferrari. Lap 39, they've got a decision to make. Mm. There's about six seconds before these cars approach the pit window. And I guess there are three different options, right? You could pit Science, you could pit Leclerc, or you could pit both for a double stack. Mm. This is where there's been a lot of criticism of Ferrari, more than the team order stuff, because obviously if you're a Carlos Sainz fan or you just don't like team orders, of course you're going to say don't swap them. Mm. But the safety car decision had to be made. Mm. I'm actually on the other side of the fence on this one. I think they're being slightly unfairly criticised for the safety car call because it was hard. Like, Lewis Hamilton was quick behind Mm. them. His tyres had been changed only six laps before, Mm. so they were practically new, Mm. you know, pretty fresh. And they were probably going to lose track position with at least one of their cars. Mm. How did you? What did you think about the way they played this one? Were you, do you think that was probably on balance the, the right decision at the time? We know it wasn't. Was kind of the right decision in the end. Uh, I thought they. I think Mattia Binotto explained it after the race that Charles was a bit in a similar situation as uh, Lewis was mm. in Abu Dhabi last year when you were leading the race. 
And he, he thought, okay, if we stop Charles, the other guys are going to, you know, they always say box opposite. They're going to do the opposite of what the guy is in, in front is doing. So do you want to relinquish track position and race lead, but have better, you know, fresher tires, given that Hamilton had just stopped, as you mentioned, five or six laps before? Okay, was was he on hard? Yeah, I think it was, was on hard. Yeah, he must have been on hard. Yeah, yeah. So you you would put soft. So I guess that would you know give you an advantage. But we know the softs they are very good. You know, on three four laps, and then the, the, the performance tends to drop off. At least that's what Ferrari thought. That they thought they thought okay, we will leave Charles, you know, in the lead because he's you know track position is is often key. But you no, know, Silverstone is not Monaco. You can clearly overtake it. Silverstone when there is a big tire delta and they thought okay it's going to be hard for three four laps for, for the time you know to that soft tires are really giving the, the the best of their performance and then if if you can survive this three four laps after the restart you should be able to manage you know sort of manage uh, until the check flat so again I'm not killing them for that I think it was a good call to split strategies so at least you know you, you, you can't really go wrong but Obviously, they should have, you know, they should have pitted the Charles and, 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 you know, leave Carlos in the race lead and tell him, look, you know, there is another, there is a, another opportunity for you to to win the race. But to do that, you have to to defend like, like crazy. Uh, now, of course, if Charles had come back and he, he would have been second behind Carlos, that would have been, a, you know, another tricky yeah. um, element for for Ferrari to manage. But in the end. Uh, so splitting strategies made sense because the double stack would have been yeah, a bit, you know, maybe tricky, especially as sometimes Ferrari in the pits is not, you know, the smoothest uh, organization. <laughs> so it could, could be a bit, a bit tricky. Uh, but yeah, clearly right from, from the off, you could say now, now when you know the tiny Delta between the, the softs and, and the hards and, you know, Silverstone, the layout, you know, it, uh, again, if it were Monaco or, or place our Singapore again, no, you know, no brainer. You you don't stop, but you know, on, on another track where you have um, overtaking opportunities, I think now it has become clearer and clearer that you, you should stop all, all the time because the, the the tire advantage you get is is so massive that and you saw you saw that with Carlos, like when he was asked to to back up the entire field. And I think it took him, what, one lap? Not even one lap to overtake mm-hmm. uh, Charles? Because, I mean, he had so much speed that he, he could not, just if he had started backing up everyone, they would have overtaken him, you know, left, right, and center. So, if yeah, they should have stopped Carlos in, in, instead of Charles. But their logic made, you know, makes sense in Binotto's explanation. They, they Let's put it this way. They didn't try to... To undermine Charles' race because clearly they are, you know, they, they, even though he was a bit hesitant earlier in the race, they are clearly backing him up for for the whole time because they asked Carlos to move aside. So clearly Charles, in their view, is their number one driver. So they they took the decision that they thought was the best for Charles and not Carlos. Turns out it was the wrong one. <laughs> 
I'm inclined to agree as well. I think in the in the situation they found themselves in, and working on the faulty piece of information, as you mentioned, that the soft tire wasn't as quick as it was, or it wouldn't last as long as it did. I think they said the engineers said they expected it to be only half a second quicker for a few laps. Obviously, that was dramatically incorrect. But on that information, the call was kind of right. The only thing that I'm surprised by, and you've mentioned already that there's sort of always feels like there's a shadow hanging over Ferrari in the pit wall a little bit. And I think this was another example, was that they didn't double stack. Now, it was tight. It was about four and a half seconds at racing speed between Leclerc and Sainz. But that was closer to 10 seconds. It was nine seconds under safety car speed. So nine seconds between them is a little bit. And they still didn't risk the double stack. And I can't help but think back to the Monaco Grand Prix where they tried, well, they tried and then they didn't want to try and they had to try anyway doing the double stack because they accidentally called Charles in. And that ruined Charles's race. And I can't help but wonder whether they're a little bit scarred by that experience because on paper, it looks like it should have been achievable. Oh, yeah. I'm, su- I'm sure, you know, at Red Bull, they, they pr- probably would have taken that decision and make it work. Mercedes, the the same, but you know, it's just Ferrari for some reason when it comes to strategy or you know just managing stressful situations in the pits. Sometimes they are not as you know as uh, smooth and slick compared compared to their rivals. But um, splitting strategy for me strategies was made sense as well as well as the double sack. But yeah, they should have yeah, left Carlos up front. Because he could have also be used to to kind of slow down and help Charles recover if if uh, if Hamilton had not stopped if if the other guys Checo uh, Norris and uh, Alonso had not stopped or if if Charles got you know overtaken in in, in the pits that can happen as well so speeding strategy I, I don't see any any issue with that to to be fair but they should have yeah they picked the wrong driver to to stop. Not because they wanted to favor Carlos, because I've read stuff like this that you know they're trying to favor Carlos. No, it doesn't make any sense. I think they tried to favor Charles, but the execution and the outcome is not is is the opposite of what they were trying to achieve. It does sound very on brand for Ferrari, doesn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, it's all yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The only other thing that I think is potentially interesting now, I know. In the end, Charles Leclerc still outscored Max Verstappen. It was only by six points. Potentially, I mean, had a win. It obviously would have been more if it was a win, a little bit more if he was second. Uh, still relatively small in the grand scheme of things. But anyway, do you think Ferrari needed to be racing Lewis Hamilton? Because Lewis Hamilton's not in championship contention. Should they have been more worried about even scoring, finishing second and third, rather than having one car on the podium and risking the other one not being on the podium by not pitting? Should they have risked the double stack in that situation, guaranteed a double podium place, maybe still winning the race because Lewis Hamilton would then have not pitted? to maximize the points against Max because it's sort of strange. And I know it's very, you obviously can't say this in Formula One, right? You can't say, well, yeah, Ferrari should risk not winning because Max is in seventh, but Max is the title leader, right? Like that's the game they're playing. I mean, it's a no risk it, no biscuit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes in sports analysis. Uh, I mean, I mean, things happen so mm-hmm. fast and you have to make like instant decisions and, uh, you know, taking into account, okay, where is Lewis? Where is Max? What are they doing? Uh, Blah blah blah, and at that time, I think Verstappen was all was kind of drifting away from 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 the mm. points, you know. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, they they made mistakes. That happens 
unfortunately too often for Ferrari uh, for you know various reasons it seems um, I don't want to totally kill them for for making mistakes and and you're right you know in the fact that Lewis bar a miracle will not be fighting for for the title all the way to the end uh, so maybe you have to sometimes you have to focus on on you know maximizing the the results compared to your true competition but of course um you know winning is uh is the you know the 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 gives you the best reward but if you try to win and you ended up you know you end the fourth like uh, like what happened to uh, to charles i don't know i don't know if it's it's it's, it's quite hard to to judge really yeah but sometimes it's true that you have to to settle for you know maybe not a race win but you know a second position would obviously give you more points that than ended up fourth and but Charles could have ended you know could have ended second still because he drove beautifully in, in the last 10 laps of the race he almost managed to to pull that off I, I was actually quite surprised that he managed to hold off Alonso and Norris I thought he was going to fall down all the way down to P6 which was a would have been terrible. I guess maybe another driver would have fallen down to P6, but I think Charles drove so well that he managed to, out of a very bad situation, uh, unfortunate, unlucky, to still salvage you know some valuable points in a damage limitation exercise. I want to wrap up a couple of other drives before we wrap up this episode. It's difficult to encapsulate the whole race in one podcast, but that was certainly the the podium aspect, wasn't it? Lewis Hamilton. Uh, managed to get onto the podium in third behind Sergio Perez and Carlos Sainz. I want to talk about Sergio Perez because his race was a little bit understated. There was so much to watch that it was not clear where he was until all of a sudden he was on the podium. Dropped to last, which was 17th, uh, a couple of laps into the race because of some damage to his car. He required some repairs. To finish on the podium, now he was in a podium place before making his last pit stop, admittedly, and then the safety car gave him a, a nice cheap stop, but probably was on track to finish no lower than fourth anyway. What is this? Is this a sign of just how good that Red Bull car was, or is it also that you know there was so much racing in this race, and that's sort of a Perez underrated strength, isn't it? I think we've seen the last couple of years, he loves the wheel-to-wheel stuff. He really excels in it. He's, he's also very good when, when everything, you know, falls apart in chaotic races. Remember his first win, he was last by the first corner, or mm. by the first lap, you know. Uh, he managed to recover through the field in a, in a, in a crazy race uh, that George Russell should have won, you know. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, Sergio is a very mature um uh, let's say, solid all-around driver. So w- when everything, you know, collapse around you, he, he's, he's, man, he's, he's obviously driving a fantastic car, probably the fastest, uh, you know, on pure pace. So obviously that helps recovering through the field when you have to go through, you know, cars that are uh, the Aston Martins or the Williams, you know, no offense, but, you know, it shouldn't be that hard to overtake <laughs> cars like this. Um but then you know, and when you get the lucky break with the safety car, but again, you have to be there to 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 let's say capitalize on, on the opportunity. And Perez, second year at Red Bull, definitely, you know, up his game. I think is he he, he closed down the gap to to Max in the championship standings. Not sure he will be allowed to fight <laughs> for the championship. So wow, we saw what happened in Spain where, where you know they kindly asked to him to move aside for 
for Max. He, he won in Monaco because he had a buffer in in um, in Carlos Sainz because Charles was fourth. Yeah, again, <laughs> another unfortunate afternoon for for Charles. Uh, and um, no, Paris is he, he reminds me in a way uh, of Daniel Ricciardo because Daniel Ricciardo, when you look at uh, all his uh, race wins, the eight race wins, most of them have come. In crazy situations, uh, Baku 2017, uh, Malaysia 2016, uh, China 2018, uh, you know, and, uh, and the three in 2014 is, uh, you know, when, when the race is turned upside down, he, he, he's always managed to, to grab the opportunity and stay in calm, making key overtaking moves and stuff like that. So the, these guys, you know, Paris is very experienced, still only 32, so which is fairly young. I, guess, I mean, yes, fairly young, yes. Younger than me, so it's young. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but I, I, I think Checo is a, is a is is more at ease with, with the Red Bull car, which is clearly the the, the best you know, the benchmark in the field at the moment. So, but, but as as you mentioned, it, it was a typical Perez race. Is that you know he's flying so much under the radar. At some point, you're like, oh wait, he, he could actually win the the whole thing. So. Uh, he could have if he had managed to clear Lewis and, and Charles, you know, uh, more quickly. He could have been a threat to to Carlos, but um, he's a very valuable uh, driver to to Red Bull clearly, and uh, I, I don't see how they. I would be surprised if they don't manage to win the the team's uh, say the constructors' championship this year, unless I don't know Ferrari finds something crazy and uh, and, and Charles and Carlos become uh, you know. Uh, uh, out of reach, but he's, uh, he's I mean, he's a, he's a great driver, lots of experience, and he's, uh, it makes sense that, that that Red Bull just gave him two more years because he's, uh, he's the perfect uh, profile for them. The battle for fourth in the constructor standings, I think, is going to be really interesting. McLaren still has it, but the gap to Alpine's been shrinking. The gap to Alfa Romeo is shrinking too, but obviously two DNFs uh, at Silverstone hasn't done too much for their points tally. Uh, Lando Norris was leading Fernando Alonso till the safety car pretty late in the race. Looked set to hold on to that one almost certainly. But then the safety car came out. Alpine decided to pit Fernando Alonso and McLaren hesitated. They chose not to. Now it was in a sense a close call. We've seen obviously Ferrari had to grapple with that but almost everyone else pitted and then eventually McLaren did pit but by then it was too late and they lost a place to Fernando Alonso and look delaying a pit stop it's it's not the biggest strategic error in the world but in the last couple of races McLaren has been making some some strange pit lane decisions Daniel Ricciardo also suffered a couple of slow pit stops in this race I think Lando Norris won as well off the top of my head and then in Canada we can remember the things that happened there for for example is this where do you think this is coming from? Because last year McLaren was one of the stronger teams in the pit lane, something they've been working on. And is it because they seem to have suddenly, you know, this year they've they've rocked up with a car that's not nearly as quick as they expected it to be? Yeah, I remember it was it was a big area of improvement last year because in 2020, mm. I remember Carlos Sainz when he was driving for McLaren had a couple of issues in in the pits, so they really worked on on that. Same with Ferrari, actually. Mm. They, which had improved last year, but I guess you rightly touched on is this this year they don't have the sort of um, performance advantage they used to have last year. So, and when you don't have a, a safety buffer compared to uh, to your direct competition, uh, you know that that's when 
the tension uh, rises and and the pressure is on and it's you know and that's harder to perform under that kind of pressure some teams actually thrive under pressure red bull is always amazing i've always been you know it's part of red bull's dna because it's a, it's a, it's a ruthless environment but the guys here and you know at red bull they are are absolutely on on it all, all the time sometimes you know mistakes can happen even even to to them but i guess mclaren is still in a recovery mode it's uh, you know it, it's not the the juggernaut that it used to be in the, the in the 80s, 90s, and in the early 2000s, or even when, when Lewis was still racing with them. And sometimes, yeah, they, they, they can, you know, fumble. But for me, it's down to uh, to the, the the nature of the competition. The midfield is so intense. And they thought they had managed to, you know, to pull away from that midfield. And I guess when you are sent back because, yeah, your car is not as, as uh, competitive as you thought it, it would be, um, it's, it's always you know takes time to adjust to to that life back in the midfield, especially when you thought you'd been promoted <laughs> to you know the the upper echelons of the of the grid of the field. So yeah, uh, you know it's w- w- when the the gaps are so so narrow, and uh, you have to take instant decisions, and you know the, the can make the difference between you know P P five and P six. I guess that's. Uh, I'm not, you know, I don't want to crucify them for for making mistakes. It's, it's, I'm sure there is also a feeling of disappointment at McLaren this year because they had been on such a great trajectory over the past, you know, three four years. Uh, so I think yeah, it's just a question of adapting back to uh, life in the midfield, which is tough. It is tough, especially when your sights were set a little bit higher, as I think they were for McLaren this year. Yeah, exactly. This weekend, the Austrian Grand Prix as well. Now, one of the big questions of Silverstone, we're going to get it answered over not only Austria, but the next couple of races as well. We've got so many before the mid-season break, is how Mercedes is going. This was billed as a big race for them. They brought some updates. We're also back on permanent circuits, and we tend to know the W13 doesn't love the street tracks. Permanent tracks a little bit better, as long as they're smooth how did you see that performance of theirs at Silverstone what are you expecting from them in particular this weekend in Austria I know Toto Wolf was very cautious after the race because obviously you know the performance has improved at Mercedes we we saw that in qualifying Hamilton was uh, P4 and George Russell was I think PA but I mean very close by so the the, the car is you know has improved clearly since the start of, of the season the upgrades have clearly uh, helped now they thought they had found you know they had found a breakthrough at the Spanish Grand Prix which is also a permanent track and then you know they they they, they struggled but the the races after Spain were Monaco Baku and Montreal so three street or semi permanent tracks um and I think in the past Austria has not really been super kind to Mercedes because I remember Max has won several times it was it couldn't be beaten last year when there was a double header uh, so, it, but it's not a happy hunting ground compared to other other tracks historically in recent years, at least for former cities. So, for me, that's the 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 red test, the the red. Well, I'm speaking, but yeah, the true <laughs> test. Sorry, sorry, apologies for that. <laughs> the true test of of their of their uh, improvements will come. Uh, I, I I will extend it to the whole month of July because then you have 
France, which is a, a more regular circuit, then then Budapest, where where Hamilton has won twenty seven times, is <laughs> <laughs> the king, is the king of the Hungaro ring. Uh, so I think bef- before the summer break, we will get a much clearer pictures on whether Silverstones was just a um, one off, you know, improvement for Mercedes, or whether they are, you know, heading into the right direction. Because let's not forget, we have the budget cap, of course, but the aero rules won't change massively until 2026. So they need to uh, to bring updates regularly because there they will be a lot of carryover in, from 22 to 23 when I say carryover. Of course, they change uh, parts and, and pieces, but the, the main concept, it's hard to just totally redesign a brand new car because we don't have a massive regulation uh, change. So they, they, that, that's why you have teams bringing updates compared to in recent years when you know we we knew there was a big uh, regulation change coming up so there was no point in really updating your car so you have to either you know suffer the whole year or just uh, enjoy your 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 good car but uh, no it's always interesting to have uh, you know the mercedes back in the mix and uh, i'll take a gamble i'd say that lewis will manage to to win one so to extend his record uh, his record uh, of winning a, at least one race Ever since he joined F1, I see him winning somewhere. I don't know where, but I would be really surprised that if if he doesn't manage to nick one somewhere. That is the question, isn't it? That record, one race a year. I really thought it could have been this weekend, and I think he had the pace to do it. Yes, France, I think, will be quite a good track yes. as well. It's very smooth and very flat. They have been very good ever since France came back on the on the calendar. Although Max won last year, but it was a, a great strategy yes. battle. I remember. I remember because I, I was on the on your podcast. Of course, yes, podcast, talking about the French Grand Prix. Yeah. So well, that could be a good uh, a good opportunity for for Mercedes. But Austria, I'm not not so sure because the track is, you know, very, I don't know, very, very nervous. I really like it. It's it's fast. It's you know there is no no time to breathe, and I think Max will be will be the man to beat. It's going to be interesting this next chapter of the championship. Still so long in this season to go though. Too long. Too, too long. long yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Julian, great to catch up with you again. Thanks so much for joining me. Many thanks. It's easy to be hard on Ferrari for yet another strategy miscalculation, even while at the same time celebrating the first of undoubtedly many Carlos Sainz victories. But with each passing round not capitalised upon, the prospects of a close championship slip further away. F1 needs Ferrari to come out firing in the next few rounds to restore some balance to the points table. Let's see if they can do it this weekend in Austria. Thanks very much to Julianne Billiot for joining me. The Strategy Report is powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll be back next week to review the Austrian Grand Prix.